0: to giving financially, please visit our website, SenecaBaptist.org. Thank you and enjoy. All All right. Fifth grade and below. Can you hear me? Can you hear this? No. Okay. You can hear that though, can't you? We, we're just going to roll with this one. Can you hear me now? It's like a Verizon commercial. All right. Uh, today, we're the reason why we dismissed from fifth grade and down, if there's anybody here that's fifth grade and down, we dismissed because we're talking about the, the uh, commandment, do not commit adultery. And so we're going to be touching on some of those things. So parents, um, uh, before we, they get way far back there, uh, I'd encourage you, if you've got a child and you hadn't gone there yet in your conversations, I would uh, take them to the back because this is going to be, um, we're not going to get into detail, detail, but it might be more questions than you want to answer later on. Uh, and so I'm just trying to save you some awkward conversations uh, in the days ahead. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, that's where we are, verse 14. Exodus 20, verse 14, God's Word says, you shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20, 14, you shall not commit adultery. Now, remember, remember, as we read through these commandments, we often will easily think of the idea that Um, These commandments, man, they're just out there, and God is trying to use these commandments to steal all the joy and all the fun that I would have in this life, and His commandments are burdensome. They are fences to keep me out of the fun park over there of the world. But remember, remember, church family, that God's commandments are not fences to keep you out of pleasure, but they are trellises to help you grow that you might experience the greatest treasure in the world. And the greatest treasure in the world is not found on the other side of a fence, but rather it's found when you trellis yourself up and you seek that which is above. Christ is the greatest treasure in all of the world, the greatest pleasure in all the world, the greatest satisfaction in all the world, and we cannot find the satisfaction that our souls so long to find if we look for them in the things of the world. So just remember, as we come to this idea We come to this idea of adultery, and there is in our, not our church necessarily, but in the church and in the world in which we live, there is so much confusion about this commandment, so much confusion. And so um, when we come to this idea of sexuality and adultery, we're going to wade into those waters today. And we're going to talk about them and try to get to the bottom of some of the confusion and find truth in light of confusion. Now now, as we dive in, we're going to do just like we've kind of been doing, the what is it? Uh, what does it mean? Um, and, and then what does Jesus have to do with this? And, and how, do I, how do I flee from it? That's what we're going to talk about today. So what is adultery as we dive in today? What is adultery? Adultery is an extramarital sexual relationship, extramarital sexual relationship. It's a sexual relationship with someone that you are not married to. That is what it means to uh, be adulterous. Now, let's clarify something. Uh, In our world, there's a lot of confusion about sexual ethic and what that means, but in the church, there has been some really bad teaching about the sexual ethic, that sex is bad, And we just need to get that off and go, no, in fact, sex is not bad at all. God created it. And most of us need to go at that moment, thank you very much. We appreciate that, Lord. God created sex. It is not dirty in and of itself, nor is pleasure inherently sinful. But rather, sex is a good gift of God's creation meant for pleasure and procreation, but when taken out of context, it can lead to all kinds of trouble in our hearts and in the world that we live in. Now, many times we think of adultery as just kind of a one-dimensional idea, that it's having sex outside of marriage. But the idea of adultery is much deeper than that. And now, if you continue on in the book of Exodus, and you read Leviticus, and you read Deuteronomy, which all speaks to the law, what you'll see is the author begins to unpack a lot of different aspects of this idea of adultery. So, adultery is sex... Outside of marriage, sex before marriage, it's having more than one wife. It's hooking up. It's shacking up. Now, our culture would say that a couple of those are A-OK. Rape, molestation, homosexuality, pornography, pedophilia, bestiality, and lust in the heart. Now, that list probably made us really uncomfortable, didn't it? Adultery, listen to me, church family, is any kind of sexual relationship outside the bounds of God's intended design. So just when you think about what is adultery, God designed a sexual relationship for a certain context. And any time we take that relationship out of that context, that is, in fact, adultery. There's so much confusion in our culture. This culture that we live in has pressed a new sexual ethic on the youngest among us. It's everywhere, isn't it? It's everywhere. You literally can't get away from the ethics of our culture, the morality of our culture being forced upon us, and the morality of our culture stands in stark contrast to the Scriptures, And so we need to be aware and informed, and we need to know how to rightly teach our children as parents and as the church. We must teach another generation following behind us what uh, the biblical design and God's ethic is. We need to be able to do that, and we need to do it with clarity. Now, There are a lot of arguments in our culture about this idea of sexual immorality or sexual ethic. There's a lot of arguments. One that you'll hear is you'll hear this kind of inside the church or those who are kind of pushing back against it. One would be that, well, those are Old Testament laws and they don't apply to me today. Now, And I would respond that these are not Old Testament Jewish laws, but rather these are laws built into creation itself. Creation order. Now, follow along with me. In the beginning, do you remember God looks down? He just created Adam, looks at Adam and says, Man, it's not good for him to be alone. And every woman in the room goes, Amen, right? We'd get into a whole lot of trouble. It's not good that they be alone, that Adam's alone. So I'm going to create a helper fit for him. God puts him into a deep sleep out of his side. He takes a rib and creates from him in the image of God, a woman to be fit for him. It says that God, like a father, kind of ushered her down the aisle, presented him to Eve, or to Adam, and said, here's your bride. Adam writes the first love poem ever known to history, bone of my blown, bones and flesh of my flesh. This is going to be called, "Woe, man. She was Okay, some of you get that later. Okay, sorry, that was a cheesy pastor joke. All right, so, and the two, in that moment, it says they were joined together in covenant and then in flesh, in covenant and then in flesh. Now, the law that we're reading in Exodus 20 is some 2,000 years later. So we've got creation and a couple millennia, and then we've got the law. So, you say, no, these are Old Testament laws, they don't apply to me today. In fact, they do because they're built into God's original design. Now, this tells us and teaches us that there are, therefore, two genders. Both are necessary for biblical marriage because marriage, at its intention and at its its design level, has reproduction in mind. The world cannot flourish. Man and women, man and woman, cannot uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it if there are not two genders. It's necessary and needed. Now some would say that's Old Testament. Jesus never spoke of those things, did he? I mean, he never condemned this stuff, but in fact, Jesus, you'll never hear Jesus say, "This is wrong, but listen to what he says. Matthew 19, verse four through six. Jesus answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, since they're male and female, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does that sound familiar? So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words... God did this, man, woman, covenant, marriage for life. This is God's design. Jesus affirmed God's creation order and defined what that is, a biological male, a biological female for life. Now, you might push back and say, well, why in the world do we see so many other examples of sexuality in the Bible? And you're right, we do. But we need to recognize and use a little logic here that just because God allowed something to be recorded in the scriptures does not mean that God has blessed it or ordained it or designed it that way. Amen? For instance, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Anybody out there trying to keep up? Why not? Why not? Because we know that just because that was recorded does not mean that God blessed it and ordained it that way. Are you with me? We see in the scriptures, we see rape and we see incest and we see homosexuality recorded in the pages of scriptures. But just because we see it recorded does not mean that God blesses it, does not mean that God has designed it that way. And it doesn't mean that they're God's prescription for a healthy marriage. Well, another pushback from our culture would say, well, doesn't God want me? If there's a God and He loves me, doesn't He want me to be happy? And the answer is, yes, He wants you to be happy. But that's not His primary concern for you. In fact, His primary concern is not happiness, but your holiness. Your, his primary concern for your life is not your happiness. Now, whether you're in sexual immorality or whether you're in any other kind of sin, just realize that God's desire and love for you does not mean that he, you can do whatever you want. Rather, God wants you to pursue holiness, to be set apart for Him, to be um, made holy in standing by the blood of Jesus and to be made holy every day throughout your life. That's God's design for you. He does want you to be happy, but if holiness comes first. Our culture would say, well, love is love, right? Love is love. Have you heard that argument? Now, let me just talk. Let's just shoot straight for a minute. Why does that 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 argument, love is love, will fail us. Here's why. Because that argument does not have a logical conclusion or end. The problem with that argument, love is love, is you can take that, love is love, and go to a degree that all of us would disagree with. You say love is love, and in, in our culture that means that homosexuality is okay. Well, if love is love, then what about pedophilia? It doesn't work, does it? Well, that's love to me. No, it's not. It's perversion. There must be, my friends, there must be a source of absolute truth outside of ourselves and our experiences that determines what is morally right and just and, and good. It's got to be outside of us, not my upbringing because we're all brought up differently, not my own beliefs because my truth could disagree with your truth, and we could have, if we have 150 people in here, we can have 150 truths, and what if your truth and my truth are at odds? There's got to be something better outside of us. God gets to define what love is and isn't, what is moral and what isn't. Why? Because He is the eternal creator God. He alone is unchanging and He alone knows how life works best. Well doesn't, doesn't? It seems like. It seems like when we talk about scriptural principles like this, when we see these truths in scripture, the culture would, would, would push back and say, it still seems like God just wants to take the fun away. And I just want you to see it differently. Don't you know that a, a father's always going to protect his children? A parent is always going to do what they believe is right for their children. How much more does God want to protect us from those things which will hurt us? Question, does having an extramarital relationship, sexual relationship, or an adulterous relationship, or having sexual immorality of any kind in our life, does it make our lives more complicated or less complicated? The answer is always more complicated. Amen? God wants what is best for you, and and, and that is his design in marriage and sexuality. He wants what's best for you, man, woman, covenant forever. That's how he designed sexuality. Well, doesn't G- Jesus love me the way that I am? Yes. Yes, he does. So listen to me, lean in. If you've come in here today and, and there is some sexual immorality of any kind, and we'll, uh, whether it's pornography or or something else, whatever that sexual immorality is in your life, does He love you right now? The answer is, of course He does, but His love is not an excuse for sin. It's not. Rather, His love and His grace and His mercy are opportunities for repentance. And that is what God desires for us. See, in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, we have the resources to be forgiven and we have the resources to fight against the sin that we struggle with in Christ. I don't have those resources in and of myself, but I do in Jesus. Now, somebody else might say, well, I've heard this argument. Maybe you've been asked the question, do adulterers go to hell? Do homosexuals go to hell? Do the sexually immoral go to hell? And I'm going to answer this question in a way for you that might shock you, but it's going to point you to the gospel. Homosexuality does not send anyone to hell. Nor does adultery. Nor does any other kind of sexual immorality. Here's how I know that. Lean and listen to me. Don't call me a heretic yet, okay? Homosexuality does not send anyone to hell because heterosexuality does not send anybody to heaven. Adultery does not send someone to hell because marital faithfulness does not send someone to heaven. Sexual immorality of any kind does not send someone to hell because chastity does not send that person to heaven. Here's what sends someone to hell. That someone, in whatever sin they're struggling with, they reject Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That is their ticket to eternal condemnation. And what sends someone to heaven is that they, that person, in whatever sin they're struggling with, that they would recognize their sin and trust Jesus as all-sufficient Savior and Lord. That sends somebody to heaven. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does what Jesus always does. He doesn't just affirm God's design, but in Matthew chapter 5, he takes the law of God that's two-dimensional in the Old Testament, and he applies another dimension of it for us. He helps us understand that the law of God is not just the letter of the law, but there's a heart behind the law also. And this is what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 28. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, if you've got your Bible open, uh, you need to circle that. Lustful intent or with lust in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what did Jesus just say? What did he say? He said that before adultery ever takes place in the flesh, adultery takes place in the mind and heart. Before it ever takes place with my hands or my body, it starts inside the heart. James, the brother of Jesus, says it this way in James chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Listen. Listen. James says there is a natural desire for men and women to have sexual relationships, but it's when we are lured and enticed by that natural desire, he says, then desire is conceived, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. We might desire intimacy of all different kinds and we take that out of context the context of marriage and we what we find is what i thought would be a blessing made my life more difficult and caused a whole lot of other sin in my life so desires left unchecked desires left unchecked lingering eyes wandering minds, that gives birth to the sin of adultery in heart. Now, adultery changes over time. Here's what I mean, and I don't mean that the scriptures change. What I mean is the form of adultery that we are tempted to commit changes over time. When we're young, there is a sexual drive that pushes each person, and that drive in us pushes us to want something physical, but that drive changes, and as we age, it might not be a physical desire, but it becomes an emotional need, an emotional lust, longing for something that someone other than my spouse is providing for me. Most marital affairs start as emotional ones. And, and, and so we, we get this idea, it, whether it's our imaginations or books that we read or shows that we watch or screens that we view, someone of the opposite sex might give you a compliment that creates in you a feeling and a desire that causes your mind to race in the wrong direction. So listen, we've talked about what adultery is and then Jesus brought it home and what he says is if you do that in your heart, you've committed it in your flesh. You might have only done it in your heart. And Jesus says the deed is as good as done before a holy God. Last week we looked at murder. Now, I I also need you to know that Ryan is not bored in his sermon study going, what are we going to preach? What hot topic are we going to cover this week? How can I offend people? And how can I talk about things that are challenging? Ryan has been preaching through the book of Exodus for close to two years now. This is why we preach through books of the Bible here at Seneca Baptist, because it forces us to talk about issues. Words and the meaning behind it. Now, in the Bible, if you keep reading the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, what you'll find out is that adultery had a serious consequence. In fact, the offender was to be killed. They deserve the death punishment. That's bad news. That's bad news. And so that brings the gospel in. That brings the gospel in. Now, we see glimpses or shadows of the gospel all through the Old Testament. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, this is what God says. God says, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love is a bride. Can, can you just imagine that God is speaking to His people like a husband would speak to a wife? He says, I remember your devotion as a youth, your, your love as a bride, how, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. In other words, I remember the days of your faithfulness. Not perfect faithfulness, but your faithfulness. And then in verse, or chapter 3, verse 12, He goes on And he just talks about how unfaithful Israel has been. But in three, this is what he says. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever, but only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree that you've not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. What does he say? I remember your love as a bride. He's speaking to people, his children, the people of Israel. He's he's likening his relationship to Israel or his people as a relationship that a husband has with his wife. And he says that their sin is like marital unfaithfulness. And if you read the Old Testament, Israel is called adulterous woman, a prostitute. He calls them a whore because of their sin their sin. And the whole book of Hosea is devoted to the idea that God would pour out his steadfast love on a cheating, faithless people. And he shows that to them. God essentially in chapter three goes to Hosea and says, Hosea, your wife has come from a a ring of prostitution and she has fallen back into that. But I want you to go Find Hosea. Go to the brothel, wherever you need to go. Go find Gomer, your wife. Go find her and take what you have and buy her out of that sexual sin one more time. This is the love of God. That the love of God would pursue us in our sin and buy us out of it. God is teaching them The way he loves them in the middle of their own idolatry, and then Jesus comes on the scene. And we see this story played out. Do you remember in John chapter 8? John chapter 8, there was a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, who was brought to Jesus. She's thrown down in front of a crowd before Jesus, and they quote the Old Testament that says, The Old Testament, the law of Moses says that ladies like this ought to be stoned. What's Jesus do? bends down, begins to draw in the, stand, in the sand. Right? He stands up. and What does he say? Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Do you remember this? Then he bends back down. And one by one, little by little, starting from the oldest among them to the youngest, they all leave. And now it's just Jesus and her. Now let me tell you what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus is not saying your sin is okay. But Jesus says to her, go and sin no more. Where are your condemners? Have they all gone? I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. The woman at the well. A bunch of husbands. See, he's not afraid of what we have done in the dark. He's not afraid of our thoughts. He's not afraid of the intentions of our hearts. His grace is sufficient. Now I want to come to the Scriptures. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6, and we'll be in there for just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, says it this way. He says in verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's bad news for us all because each one of us falls into that category. In other words, none is righteous, no, not one. We all deserve the judgment of God. And this is what he goes on to say in verse 11: And such were some of you. Past tense, this is what you were. But, he says, you were washed. The blood of Christ cleanses us. From our sin, washes us, takes us, though we are, our sins are as scarlet, He cleanses us and makes us white as snow. Isn't that good news? You were washed. Then He says, you were sanctified. That word means made holy. You were made holy in an instant. How? Because Christ's holiness was accredited or in, in input into your account. As He took your unholiness, your unrighteousness, He credited into your account His righteousness. He took your sin, shame, guilt, punishment. He took all of that upon the cross and into your account He gave you His perfect holiness. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. That word means to be made right in the court of God. That when you stand before the judge, your penalty has been paid in full. It's not that you weren't guilty, but that there was another who took your guilt. You are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And then in verse 19 and 20, he continues. He goes on to say like this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Why? You are bought with a price. And the book of 1 Peter tells us, Like Hosea bought Gomer, out of her adultery, God says, I bought you out of your sin too. But it wasn't with silver and gold. It was with the precious blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. You were purchased. You were bought out of your slavery to sin, and now you belong to God. And in the book of Hosea, God says, you'll no longer call me master, but now you're going to call me husband. And I'm going to be faithful to you and I'm going to teach you to be faithful to me. This is the gospel that would save us. Gosh. Our response. I'm going to move through this really fast. Our response is to flee from sexual immorality. Flee from it. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 5. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Now here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not encouraging us to mutilate our bodies. What He is saying is that we need to understand the seriousness of sin and we need to stop playing with sin. Because what we think we have dominated will end up dominating us. What we think we have beat will end up beating us. And we need to fight against our own desires. And the gospel is the motivation and the power to deal with sin. The gospel saves us from sin and gives us the resources to fight against it. So we need to flee from it. And how do we flee? How do we flee? The, write these things down. Five ways. How do we flee? We avert our eyes. Men. You may have noticed that women dress differently today. And we need to learn Learn to avert our eyes so that our hearts don't lust after women. Women have a role in that too. Please dress modestly, appropriately, but we we cannot blame it on them when it's my eyes. I need to learn to avert my eyes. Second, I need to learn to guard our hearts. We need to learn to guard our hearts. What that means is, if there is a tendency in your life that you know that you have the tendency to sin, whether it's emotionally or in our, the lusts of our heart or mind, whether we, it's a, book, a kind of book that we read or a show that we watch, when we see those things, it does not lead us down a good path of holiness. When I see those things, I need to learn to guard my heart, which might mean that third, I create safe boundaries. I don't watch that show. I don't go to that place. I don't, Ryan Perry does not meet with a woman alone in my office. So if if you call me and you ask to meet with me, I'm going to have somebody in there, or the door's going to be wide open, and Miss Lynn's going to be sitting right outside. There are safe boundaries that we need to learn to put into our lives to protect our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. Fourth, we need to build accountable relationships. That means there needs to be somebody in your life who's asking you the hard question of, how are you doing in the the realm of sexuality or lust? How are your eyes and your mind and your heart honoring the Lord when when regarding sexual stuff? Who's asking you that question? Are Are you letting somebody meet a need in your life that only your spouse is intended to meet or only God is intended to meet. And last, you need to seek Jesus first. We, we often long for some feeling or joy or pleasure or satisfaction. We long and look for those things in people, in relationships, in experiences, when in fact what we know is that Jesus has come. And what he says is, I am the bread of life. Are you hungry? Come to me and eat. And if you come to me and eat, you'll never be hungry again. He says, I'm the living water. Are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. He says, I'll put in you a well or a spring of living water that will flow up out of you. In other words, Jesus will satisfy every longing of your heart if you seek him first. As we close. Our response might be simple today. One would be repentance and salvation. Maybe there are things in your life that you need to repent of. You're already saved. You know you're saved, but there God has convicted you of something and you just need to lay that down before Him today. Two, you are convicted of sin, but you're not saved. Today is the day of salvation. Trust Jesus as Savior and Lord. Maybe there are things in your life that you have to do differently. Let God direct your steps according to his will, not ours. But let's close our time in prayer. Would you stand with me? Father, we look at our world and we look at our world that is so confused, so broken, Where this idea of free sexuality or free love has absolutely destroyed people and lives. That there are young people growing up where they have access to anything they want on a phone in an instant. And and Father, the brokenness is growing. And you're our only hope. For many of us, there's been a sexual relationship or experience in our lives that has done something in us, that has hurt us and caused us great pain. And so today, we, we want to confess our sin before you. We know that you're not afraid of our sin. We know that you, are, you, you love us despite us. And so we bring our sin to you, not that we, you might bless it and we might continue in it, but that you would forgive it and that we might learn that there, are, there is a better way to live. God, thank you that in Jesus, we have all the resources of heaven at our disposal for how to live a life pleasing to you. Lord, help us to do that. I pray for brothers and sisters in these moments that we would be humble and honest and we would seek you for help in Jesus' name and the church says we're going to sing a final song this these steps as an altar